The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. We have been in the book of Nehemiah for some weeks now, and um, I was thinking this past week that a sermon series, an expository sermon series, is like uh, kind of be, can be like a hydrofoil boat. You know, the kind that once it gets up speed, it, it actually lifts above the water and planes across, and it's. Some sermon series are like that. You just kind of get the lay of the coastline and you get to see the top and, and so on. And then some <clears throat> sermon series are more like a glass bottom boat where you slow everything right down and you, you can look down and uh, see plant life and fish life below the sea. And Nehemiah's series has been more like a hydrofoil <laughs> boat. We've been going pretty fast and we're, we're just getting a chance to see what have been the big themes in Nehemiah? What have, what is it that is, is really pertinent to our church family at this season of our lives? And, and so, uh, today we end this sermon series and I'm sure next time we come back to it, we would be able to slow things down. But, uh, today we end with a really important portion where God shows us, uh, the very importance of the Re- Reformation and renewal of God's people. Because we have seen that, that on the surface of Nehemiah is the building of walls. And deep beneath is the building of a people of God that love Him and put Him first. And so, this morning we're going to be talking about this, the reformation and renewal of God's people. Now, when I use that word reformation, some of you might automatically go back to the 16th century when... A group of people in various nations in Europe especially protested the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church against its people. And that's where the word Protestant came from. And this idea of reformation is, is, is returning to something and restoring something that, that is, is not right. Fixing something. And, um, and so people protested and they stood up and said, this isn't right, and, and they took people back to God's Word. And so that's where the Protestant Reformation came. And out of that came Reformed churches and Protestant churches of all uh, stripes and sizes. And that's what we have today. But the word reform really has to do with making changes in order to improve it. And the word renewal takes that idea even deeper because renewal is this idea of resuming an activity that has been interrupted and then needs to be returned to. It's fixing something that's broken. And it once was okay, but now it's not, and it's needing to be fixed again and repaired. Indeed, in Nehemiah, we see that both reformation and renewal, revival, take place. And we read read about that last week in chapter 8. And... uh, not only the physical reform of walls that had to be built and, and a temple that had to be built in, in Jerusalem, but the spiritual reformation of a people that needed to be gathered, that had been scattered throughout the East in Babylon and other places, and they needed to be regathered and brought together and reformed into the, 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 the church of community faith. And in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, <clears throat> You see about the agreements they make. They make some vows. They make some a, a covenant renewed before God, a vow of obedience. In chapter 11, we see that they 
cast lots and they say, who's going to live within the walls of Jerusalem? There's not room for all of us. And who's going to live out in the towns and villages that are less protected? There's this reforming, you know, there's this formation of the people that is happening. Verse 12, or chapter 12, you read about the priests and the Levites that are getting trained again and they're having to figure out how to do their job within the temple. The singers and the musicians and so on. At the end of chapter 12, there's this very impressive service of dedication. The walls are dedicated finally. And then the interesting thing that we find if we stopped there and we didn't read the last chapter of Nehemiah is we'd think that, hey, this is great. Revival has come. Reformation has come. God's people are back in the land. Everything's going great. But what chapter 13 tells us is that Nehemiah had to return to Persia. Remember, King Artaxerxes is his boss, the king of Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king, and he was given permission to go and build the walls. But now that they're dedicated, he's got to go back to Babylon. And he, or to Persia, I should say. And he gets back to Persia and carries on his job. How long he was there, we're not certain. I've read anything from three years to 12 years. So when we read chapter 13, the things that we read about in chapter 13 have taken place and it, it, it's, the, it's the Jerusalem that Nehemiah returns to after he has been absent for several years. And as we're about to see when we read is that <clears throat> perhaps you and I know from our own experience that we might have spiritual times of awakening in our lives where God seems so close to us and we love to pray and we love to read His Word and then all of a sudden it seems like within weeks we can go back to that harder time of coldness. You've been to a, a, a spiritual retreat and got up there and just really enjoyed the Lord's presence in a week later or a week of camp and you've had such close teaching and fellowship and worship and then a week or two later you feel like you've settled back into some old habits, compromise, and so on. Let's take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nehemiah chapter 13, and let's read verses 1 to 14. If you're able to stand with me, would you stand now? On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted to the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them, though our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, he was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. I had to return to the king, and some time later I asked permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the court of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned 
that the portion assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and the singers responsible for the service had gone back to their fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain and new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in the charge of the storerooms. And I made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these were men that were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And God bless his word. You may be seated. Can you imagine what Nehemiah felt after being absent for some years, having left after the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem, and seeing that indeed this people had been reformed and renewed at heart and were worshiping the Lord God again, to leave for some years and now come back and to find that one of his chief enemies, Tobiah, the one that we met in chapters 2 and following, one of his chief enemies, the thug that was trying to do Nehemiah in, was not just part of Judah, he was living in the temple. He was living in a storeroom that was reserved. This was reserved for tithes and, and furniture and things that were made holy and purified for the priests. And here's this enemy of Israel who was related to this high priest through marriage, which wasn't supposed to happen either. And here he was living within the temple. Nehemiah, as we just read, wastes no time. He, you can picture him in your mind just tossing things out of the room as he walks in and finds what's going on. And he is upset at what is going on. The house of God had been neglected. And Nehemiah was not going to stand for it. He also found out that the, the Levites who were supposed to be serving because the tithes weren't being brought in, the people were not being faithful, the Levites just said, we got to feed our families. So they went back to the fields and they were working outside in the fields. So Nehemiah dealt with that as well. That was the first thing. The house of God neglected. The second problem that Nehemiah faced when he came back was that the day of God, the Sabbath, was being disrespected. In verses 15 and following, we didn't read it, but we find that what was happening was that the gatekeepers to Jerusalem were leaving the gates wide open on all sides of the city. They were leaving the gates wide open all during the Sabbath. And the local merchants from surrounding nations would come by with their caravans and with their wagons, and they would just wheel them right into the city square of Jerusalem. And there, all the Jew Jewish people would just come and start buying and selling. Instead of being at the temple and reserving this one day of quiet where they would worship God, where they would be in the temple, where they would be in prayer and having certain offerings and so on. And again, Nehemiah is upset. In fact, he, he instructs the gatekeepers, you make sure that the gates are closed before the Sabbath begins and you don't open until the Sabbath is finished. He goes beyond that. In the Scripture we read that he gets up on the, on the wall of Jerusalem on that first Sabbath day and he yells down at this caravan walking by 
and waiting to get into the, to the city gates. And he yells at them. He says, if you come back here, I'm going to lay my hands on you. I mean, this is not the model of leadership that we kind of expect in the house of God, you know. He says, I'm going to lay the boots to you if you ever come back to this place, you know. Just angry. Why though? If we can lose sense of what's happening on the surface, we forget that underneath it all was what? Zeal for God. These are holy things. And we must treat them holy. And then the third thing that he finds in verses 23 to 29, in his absence, he had he'd seen, this happened earlier, Ezra had to address this, he'd seen that some of the Jewish men, the people of Judah, they had married women from other nations. Now, it is not the ethnicity that's the problem here. It is not that they are from foreign nations. There were many people from other ethnicities that lived among Judah, but they learned Hebrew and they followed the Lord and they, and they read the Torah and they understood the ways of God. But here was the situation where these men were women, marrying foreign women who were teaching them their mother tongue as well as their religious idolatries and that the very children of these men of Judah were not learning the law of Moses. They were no longer being nurtured in their faith. And Nehemiah could see that within a couple of generations, we're going to have such a watering down of the faith. We cannot do this. We cannot allow this. Now the Scripture is very graphic, and I don't know how you read this, but it says in the Scriptures that he, he beat some of the men publicly, and he pulled their beards out. Now, now here, here's... <laughs> okay, so... <clears throat> I did read one commentary that suggested this was a formality. It's kind of like, you know, the, the British, uh, you know, slap the white, the white glove. You know, it's not really hurting. It's just a public shame. It's making a statement. Uh, it could have been, it could have been, I'm not saying I know, but it could have been that was this, this public saying in front of everybody, I'm pulling a couple hairs of your beard out because I am showing you this is a shame to God's name that you have allowed, that you have married outside the faith, and you are allowing your children to be raised outside the faith. And so, Nehemiah addresses it. Now, I want you to know, I think, that we are so far culturally removed from what happened in Nehemiah 13 that it is very difficult for us to judge this thing. And if we get lost in the front, the top layer of what he's doing as a leader, we might not hear the very issue, the principle underneath it is the holiness of God and the importance of obedience to God's ways. And so in this Scripture, we see three things that Nehemiah addresses. The house of God that was neglected. Now, how do we apply that today? You and I are the house of God, folks. The Bible says that we're all living stones being built into a spiritual house. Paul says, you yourselves, you church, you are the temple of the living God. And so, don't neglect the holiness of God's people, the church. The second point that he addresses this idea of the day of God being respected, we could get way off track on understanding what, what is the Sabbath day, how do we observe it nowadays. I believe in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. That we have entered into the Sabbath rest called Jesus and so Paul says to the Colossians, don't, don't make one day more important than the other necessarily. That does not mean that the principle of Sabbath is not really healthy for us as humans. 
For six days God worked, and the seventh day He rested. And I think that if we don't understand that rhythm of life, we miss out. Regardless of your view of Sabbatarian things, if you don't understand that principle, you miss out on something deeply important for your humanity and your sanity and your way of living as God wanted you to. And so in this Scripture that we're looking at, I think that we, we need to step back and say, what is Nehemiah doing? How is he acting? What is the purpose? What's the motive here? You know, he, he reminds them of, this is what brought Solomon down. Remember? Solomon was brought down not because he wasn't wise or rich or whatever, but because he allowed women that had other, that had other religious convictions into his life and they, they led him away from God. Don't do this, Nehemiah says. I like what John White says. John White writes this, the problem with God is that He tells people how to live. And people don't like being told how to live. Christian leaders who truly teach may find themselves instructing God's people on touchy issues. They include marital and family issues, child rearing, sexual morality, the most elemental aspects of humanity, and courage will be needed if Christian leadership is to follow God. There's a book that our staff are reading right now by Calvin Miller. It's called The Table of Inwardness. And Calvin Miller writes this, The single most important word in the New Testament is... Oh, maybe I'll tell you next week. Don't you want to know what the single most important word in the New Testament is? I, I, when I read that, I was going like, ah! I was salivating. You know? Tell me the most important word in the New Testament. You know what he says? It's the word Lord. The most important word in the New Testament is the word Lord. And then he goes on to say this, and the issue of every disciple is whether or not he or she shall have a Lord or be one. That's, 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 that's New Testament. That's rock-bottom, solid Christian faith. That's, are you going to run your life? Are you going to call the shots? Or are you going to let Jesus be your Lord? And He's going to run the show. Praise the Lord for His incredible grace and patience with us because we seem to keep on taking the reins back too often, don't we? Let's move on. I want to share the next point in, in uh, the message is that reformation and renewal is an ongoing labor of love for leadership. You know, leadership is lonely in every, in any sphere of life. I think there are, there are periods of loneliness that a leader of a family, of a, of a school, of a church, of a business, there's certain leadership issues that will cause loneliness and isolation. Nehemiah certainly understood Loneliness. Nehemiah is getting older by the time we get to chapter 13, and he has returned from his years away again. He is an elderly man, and he sees the condition of things, and he's feeling isolated, and he's feeling, oh God, what have I spent my life on? What have I poured myself into? These people have gone back to old patterns. Oh God, what is the future of Israel if this is Jerusalem now? And you'll notice that he prays four times. Verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 31. And notice that the four times he prays, he begins by saying, Remember, O God, remember me, O Lord. What is he saying? 
Is this a pity party prayer? That's the question I ask myself. It can almost sound that way. Is it, is it a prayer like Luke 18, where the Pharisee stands up in the temple and he says, Oh Lord, I thank You that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I pray regularly. No, he's, that's not the kind of prayer I think that Nehemiah is praying here. Look at me, God kind of prayer. I think what Nehemiah is praying here is an absolute child to father saying, God, I, I have spent my life here and I don't see the results. Have you ever had that kind of sense of isolation or loneliness, disappointment in those around you? Have you ever wondered people not there for you when they're supposed to be there for you? People who have been compromised in their faith. People who are trying to fit into the world instead of follow God. People who are looking out for themselves. I think Nehemiah felt a lot of that stuff. And he just, these four prayers, I think, are the cry of a man that sought to be faithful to God. And he's just saying, God, just remember me. And please let some of what I've lived for make a difference in Jerusalem. Next, I want to go on to just share in the final time that I have, the next 10 or 15 minutes, I want to share some lessons that we could learn from Nehemiah. And you'll notice I gave you some ABCs there in the, in the insert. And the first one is an A. It's called aim for faithfulness to God, not success. There's a danger in the success syndrome that our culture can be plagued with. And um, we must be careful of the success syndrome. Someone has said that people can soon identify whether you are a voice or an echo. You know, it says of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And I think that the task of someone like myself when I open up the Bible and do expository preaching, the goal that I have is to be a voice, not an echo. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that I'm not just supposed to look at all the commentaries and everybody on earth and what do they say and then echo back what, they, what they've said. I need to personally go into the Word of God. I need to ask the Holy Spirit who wrote the Scripture, the ancient text a long time ago, I'm asking Him, Lord, make it real for a people of another place and time right here at White Ridge Baptist Church. And I, I ask You, Lord, give me a voice, not an echo. Let me be the voice of God today in uh, uncovering what God has for us today. And yet every so often I want you to know that there, there'll, be, there'll be a book or a commentary where I come across and I say, Lord, I don't think I can say it any differently. You know, I can't say it any better. And I want to read to you a little bit from a book by J.I. Packer called A Passion for Faithfulness. And I think he says it so well. He says, we can succeed in reaching goals that we have set ourselves and still not know God's verdict on what we've been up to. And the fact is, if we've thus succeeded, it does not mean that God now necessarily counts us a success. He says, where quantifiable success is God, pride always goes strong and spreads through the soul as cancer gallops through the body. Orienting all Christian action to visible success as its goal, a move which to many moderns seems supremely sensible and businesslike, 
is thus more a weakness in the church than a strength. It is a seedbed both of unspiritual vainglory for the self-rated succeeders and of unspiritual despair for the self-rated failures. Wisdom says, leave success ratings to God and live your Christianity as a religion of faithfulness rather than an idolatry of achievement. So important. So important that we keep knowing that we've done our best to discern what God has asked of us. We've made our plans and we've sought the path that He has led us in. But in the end, what, what, we're, what we're aiming at is not some kind of success. We're aiming at faithfulness. Just be faithful to obey God in the promptings He gives us. There is indeed a danger of a success syndrome. The second one, the letter B, I call it beware of the killer bees. Don't imitate others, be yourself. I like what Brian Chappell writes. Brian Chappell talks about the danger of trying to be like uh, someone else, even a Bible character who's a worthy example like Nehemiah. There's a danger, in other words, of imitating godliness. Now, let that sink in. There's a danger of imitating godliness. Now, I know you're, you're thinking, well, Paul said, imitate me even as I imitate Christ or follow me even as I follow Christ. It sounds like Paul's asking for that. I don't think that's what he was asking for because that's the very thing, this imitation idea without inward substance was what he criticized the Pharisees of, right? Whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. Outward conformity, not inward reality. And I know that Paul didn't mean that when he said imitate me. I know what he meant was found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I think that Paul could equally have said, now hear me on this, I think Paul could have equally said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of godliness. You think that's heresy? Of course we have. No, I don't think it's heresy. I don't think Paul was focused on the end product, the pattern of the world, the pattern of your Christian friend, the pattern of the godliest person in your church, the pattern of Billy Graham. I don't care what pattern it is. Don't, don't conform. That's the point of the message, right? Why, why is it that that's the point? Because the word conform means that you're, you're obeying outwardly something and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's inwardly real. The word in Greek is schema, the outward schematics. Instead, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word transformation there is the word metamorphosis. Where you are changed, just like Samantha sang, you are changed from the inside out. You, you, that metamorphosis, you know, I, I remember studying in science. This little worm crawls up into a rafter somewhere, builds this cocoon tomb thing around it, is gone for a period of time. And all of a sudden, some weeks or months later, this incredible creature, a beautiful butterfly, comes out of that. The change took place invisibly and within that place. 
And then, and then it came out and showed the world the beauty and the glory of a butterfly instead of this little moth, this little, sorry, the little worm or caterpillar. I remember when I was in Thunder Bay pastoring and I've been going through my sermons. I've got 35 years of sermons that take up about that much paper space in filing cabinets and I figured, well, I don't think I'm going to take those with me. I never preach them again anyway. Seems like I always want to go back to the scripture and study again anyway. So, so I'm, I'm going through them and I'm ripping them up and shredding them and ripping them up and so on and came across a sermon I had preached in 1996. Were you at Thunder Bay at that time? Ever? I was preaching to Asda that day and, uh, and, um, I use the illustration of in my office at the time in the old church on the corner of Red River Road and Algoma Street in Thunder Bay, this old building had hot water boiler heat. And I, I, I remember every time I would want to turn the heat up, I'd go up to the thermostat and just tweak it slightly. And then you could hear the bang, bang, crack, bang going on. And it was all these pipes in the room and the valves in the pipes were opening and the hot water was coming through those valves and displacing the cold water. And then all of a sudden, within a few seconds, maybe a minute or two, I started to feel that, that humid, nice, warm heat coming into my office. You see, the outward change in the environment of my office was a result of the inward change in the pipes. And the outward change that is going to take place in your life is going to be real. The outward change that's going to take place in our church and in our society, if it's going to be real, has to take place within us first. That's transformation. That's not conforming outwardly. That's being transformed inwardly. It happens as you renew your mind in Christ. And so as we read the Scriptures, beware of imitating. Be yourself. Be the self that Jesus is making you to be. That's the best thing you can offer to anybody around you is the self that Jesus is making you to be. C, confront sin like Nehemiah did. Not a very popular subject, that confrontation thing. Can I make a confession this morning? I, I thought I should maybe... We talked about this in our life group on Thursday night. I... Maybe I should start a 12-step group on this one, but I bet you I've got a few comrades in the room. I confess that I am a recovering people pleaser. Can I have a hand of anybody else? Okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. <laughs> you know, I mean, is there not something in us, each one of us, that you've caught yourself in the middle of the act of saying yes or, or just acquiescing or whatever it was. And if you really examine the motive of your heart, you realize, I'm just saying yes because I don't want a conflict and I just want them to be, I like, I like to be liked and all that stuff. I, I see Nehemiah as a great guy that said, you know what? I'm more concerned about the glory and the holiness of God. And so I'm not going to just bend over and be a people pleaser. And then depend, D, depend on God and entrust your life to God. What a man of prayer Nehemiah was. Prayer was so important to him. You know, one of the lessons that stands out for me is, is that when, when we look at these two subjects of reform or renewal, I've reformed my life so many times. 
I mean, I'm, I've, I have, I've decided New Year's resolutions, you know, or, or, or I've said to myself, okay, uh, next year, I'm going to read the Bible differently. I'm going to do this program. Or I'm going to get up earlier and I'm going to get to bed earlier. Or, okay, I'm going to try fasting once a week or, or once a month. Or, or I'm going to try, I'll be, belong to that Bible study. You've all probably had a hand in trying to reform your life at various times. But boy, renewal is a very different thing, isn't it? I can only say that I've really experienced genuine spiritual renewal in my life a handful of times. And, and I just love, I love those times. And like I said last week, that in between those times, we have to be in the place of seeking God and reformed and ready to be filled with God so that when He blows His wind, we can take off with God and experience the blessing that He has for us. And I think that as a church... Reforming is important. We're going to be organizing a little differently, programming and service teams and different things in the new building. That's all important for the formation and the reformation of the church. But, but what we're always seeking, friends, is renewal. Another very important lesson I think is, it, it, I, would be, I would be negligent if I didn't point this out, is that the tremendous need that the people of Judah had of maintaining good relationships with each other. We saw it earlier in the series when some of the Jewish people were charging interest and loaning people money, and some of them even had to sell their daughters and sons as slaves because of that. And Nehemiah says, no more of this. We're not going to abuse each other that way. We need to keep healthy relationships. Can you imagine what a shame it would have been to the nations surrounding Jerusalem if they had got the, the wall built, the temple built, and everything's done, and then the people inside couldn't stand each other and were backbiting and fighting and slandering. And can you imagine, you can see the point of reference I'm making here, folks. What good would it be if we see that Chris Karam comes to us one day and he's got a key in his hand. He says, delivered, signed, sealed, all specs done. We're ready to move into McGilvery. What good would it be if we're all ready to move into a building and we can't stand each other? If there's backbiting or slander. And one of the positions of my prayer chair that I've been keeping my eye on this whole season is how are we doing relationally with each other when we don't agree with each other, when we, when we, we offend each other, and so on. Well, what, what a shame it would be to soil the name of Christ and to, to ruin the reputation of our church if we could get into a brand new building, but then we want to go back to two services because I, I can go to one service and that guy can go to the other. See, we don't want that. We want, we want healthy relationship. We have said for years now that we believe that making and nurturing followers of Jesus Christ happens in healthy relationship. And so we keep our eye on that in our marriages, in our families, in our church, in our neighborhoods. God calls us to that. We want to invite you this Friday to join with us in a day of prayer and fasting. And some of you might not have any plans to do that, and that's fine, that's acceptable. I, we don't want you to feel any obligation. Um, some of you cannot enter into a, a day of fasting because of dietary and, and health restrictions. That's understandable too. We would invite you to join us in prayer that day. And on the back of the insert in your bulletin, 
you will notice that there are various uh, prayer requests that you can follow with us that day on. on. At noon that day, here at this building, we'll meet for an hour to pray together. And um, just remember that um, uh, it is not about the, the food, it's about the focus. And we really want to honor God and pursue God. It's not about pursuing the gifts of God, the answered prayer. It's about pursuing God. Because we know that when we get Him, uh, we're going to get the answered prayer along with it. You'll notice in the, in the insert, we're praising God for His generous love and mercy expressed through Christ that day. We're thanking God for answered prayer and leading so to date in our church. We're confessing to God any sin that we found in ourselves or anything that our church needs to turn from in order to trust God. We're asking God to protect us from the enemy, Satan. We're asking Him to bless our church as well as the leadership of our church and the decisions that are being made. We're asking Him to bless our relationships with lubrication of love and respect. We're asking God to bless the Truth and Life Worship Center, this church that is interested in buying this building, that God might make that possible, that He would send a buyer for us. We're asking God to enable us to prepare for the completion of the 2405 McGillivray Project safely and efficiently, that will facilitate the ministry God envisions for us in the coming years. We're asking that we as a congregation would have our hearts ready and soft before God so that we will hear His voice, especially as it concerns those that He wants us to, to, to tell Him about the Lord and to invite Him along. And we're asking that God would keep our focus always on Him and not on ourselves. Father God, we praise You for this opportunity to be together this morning. And Lord, as we prepare for this Friday, we ask You to prepare our hearts and our minds that, that the lessons of Nehemiah would ring true that we would find in ourselves, Lord, a, a spirit of contrition and of humility, and that you might find in us people available to you for your Lordship. Lead us today and always in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, God bless you, Dan. Peace.